This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's Shakespeare's last true romantic comedy, it's Twelfth Night. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that surfeiting the appetite may sicken and so die. Once more, Cesario, get thee to yon same sovereign cruelty. I will be strange, <laughs> stout, in yellow stockings and cross-garted even with the swiftness of putting on. <laughs> I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. My father had a daughter, loved a man, as it might be perhaps were I a woman, I should your lordship. I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. All right, as always, we're going to give you a brief refresher. How brief? This is Twelfth Night in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of Illyria. The Count Orsino is in love with Olivia, but she's in mourning for her dead brother and won't give him the time of day. Orsino sends his servant Cesario with a love letter, not knowing that Cesario is actually Viola, a young woman who was shipwrecked on Illyria's coast. Olivia falls in love with Cesario slash Viola at first sight. Viola, meanwhile, is already in love with Orsino. Elsewhere in Olivia's household, the drunken con man Sir Toby Belch is cavorting with his friends, earning him the wrath of Olivia's puritanical steward, Malvolio. With the help of Mariah, the maid, Sir Toby plants a false love letter to Malvolio, supposedly written by Olivia. The letter directs him to appear before her in yellow stockings, which he does, leading to Olivia to conclude that he's gone mad. Malvolio is promptly locked away. Viola's twin brother shows up in Illyria and causes confusion when Olivia sees him, she thinks he's Cesario, and quickly marries him. More confusion reigns until all is eventually sorted out. Revealed as a woman, Viola weds Ursina, while Sir Toby weds Mariah, and Malvolio, told of how he has been abused, bows revenged. Everyone ignores him, and the play ends in song. One of Shakespeare's most popular comedies, Twelfth Night, otherwise known as What You Will, was reportedly written for the end of Christmas season in 1602. This may explain the play's largely festive atmosphere. Music dominates the show, while Sir Toby Belch and his cohorts spend much of their time gallivanting around the stage, usually with a few drinks nearby. Despite this, the play is not without its serious themes. The reason, for instance, all those drinks are nearby is that Sir Toby is almost certainly an alcoholic. Meanwhile, Viola and Olivia are in mourning and Orsino is severely depressed. Homoeroticism abounds, whether it's between Sebastian and his friend Antonio, or Orsino and the page boy who he thinks is Cesario. Significantly, he never once sees Viola as a woman, even when he asks for her hand in marriage. Being the bridge to Shakespeare's more ambiguous plays, he'd follow this up with difficult works like Troilus and Cressida and Measure for Measure, it isn't surprising that Twelfth Night has some ambiguity of its own. I've seen few productions that have found a way to explore this dual nature with any success. Usually, the producers either favor one side at the expense of the other. In crafting Twelfth Night, Shakespeare borrows much from As You Like It, forging an entire play out of that plot device in which a girl falls in love with a cross-dressing heroine. Olivia, though, is no Phoebe, who is only feigning love in order to torture poor Silvius. Consequently, she is much less interesting. She is perhaps the play's least interesting female, being little more than a narrative device whose beauty kickstarts the plot. She marries Sebastian under false pretenses, a foreshadowing of the bed trick, which will be such a crucial plot point in All's Well That Ends Well and Measure for Measure. 
Now, in those cases, one woman replaces another in bed, but in Twelfth Night, it's Sebastian who replaces Viola, or rather Cesario, at the wedding altar. A good lawyer could argue that this makes the marriage void, but Olivia has no interest in finding a good lawyer. In fact, she only has one line with which she can even react to the discovery that she has not married the person she thought she was marrying. Actors condemned to play Olivia must wrestle with the fact that she isn't that bright and remains as capricious as a wicked queen. In mourning for her father, she shuns Orsino, only to cast off her mourning weeds the moment Viola slash Cesario walks into the room. She marries with haste and would almost have certainly repented at leisure if Shakespeare had given her the words to do so. But Shakespeare doesn't appear to have had much interest in Olivia, who doesn't do much in the play besides pursue Cesario with an almost obsessive zeal. Shakespeare's primary interest is in Malvolio, that stodgy steward, and in Viola, his last great comic heroine. Indeed, his interest in celebrating one and humiliating the other forced Shakespeare to divide his attention. Charming as it is, Twelfth Night remains an uneven show. The two plot lines never quite coalesce, resulting in a play whose story is constructed of twin plots, and like the separated twins of the play's heart, they each go on to lead very different lives. Viola remains one of Shakespeare's strongest heroines, though not as strong as Rosalind, with whom she shares many traits. Each is a girl separated from her family, and each volunteers to dress in men's clothing with surprising ease. It seems notable that neither Viola or Rosalind have to be induced to parade about in disguise. In both cases, they come up with the idea entirely on their own. Notably, Viola hears of both Orsino and Olivia upon arriving in Lyria, but she never once entertains the notion of trying to work for Olivia, even though that would be a lot easier than presenting herself to Orsino as a eunuch. Deciding to dress as her own lost twin hints at the melancholy and grief that truly defines Viola, and yet she, like Rosalind before her, never manages to deal directly with the trauma lurking in the shadows. The closest we get is a singular conversation with Orsino, in which she hints at her melancholy in her life. Make no compare between that love a woman can bear me and that I owe Olivia. Aye, but I know... What dost thou know? Too well what love women to men may owe. In faith they are as true of heart as we. My father had a daughter, loved a man, as it might be perhaps were I a woman, I should your lordship. What's her history? A blank. My lord, she never told her love, but let concealment like a worm i' the bud feed on her damask cheek. She pined in thought, and with a green and yellow melancholy she sat like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. Was not this love indeed? We men may say more, swear more, but indeed our shows are more than will. For still we prove much in our vows, but little in our love. Patience on the Monument is a good way to describe Viola, who is very serious despite the fact that she spends most of the play trying to smile through her sorrow. This solemnity would be out of place in most comedies, but Viola is an outsider in Illyria, and so it makes sense that she feels like the alien who has landed on Earth. Twelfth Night has so many zany characters that Viola's self-control is actually a bit of a relief. In keeping with Shakespearean tradition, she is always the smartest person on stage, though not always the wittiest, and it is her smarts which Olivia responds to when Viola slash Cesario approaches with Ursino's words of love. If I did love you in my master's flame, with such a suffering, such a deadly life, in your denial I would find no sense. I would not understand it. Why? What would you? Make me a willow cabin at your gate, and call upon my soul within the house. Write loyal cantons of contemned love, and sing them loud, even in the dead of night. Hallow your name to the reverberate hills, and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out. 
Olivia. Like Rosalind, Viola earns the love of another woman while in disguise. For Rosalind, this is hardly worth more than a laugh, but for Viola, the stakes are much higher. Alone in the world, she is nothing but the world of Illyria. The consequences for revealing her disguise could be disastrous. Her love for Asino only intensifies the crisis. And yet, it is here that Viola disappoints. Rosalind is forever active in the Forest of Arden. When the problem of Phoebe presents itself, she at least works to find a solution. Viola is much more passive. Realizing that Olivia loves her, Viola does nothing but dither. Disguise. I see thou art a wickedness, wherein the pregnant enemy does much. How easy is it for the proper force in women's waxen hearts to set their forms? Alas, our frailty is the cause, not we. For such as we are made of, such we be. How will this fadge? My master loves her dearly, and I, poor monster as much on him, as she mistaken seems to dote on me. What will become of this? As I am man, my state is desperate for my master's love. As I am woman, now, alas, the day, what thriftless sighs shall poor Olivia breathe? Oh, time, thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. Content to let time untangle the farce rather than try to do anything herself, Viola only perpetuates the crisis. Why does she not implore Orsino to send someone else to give his suit? Upon returning to Olivia, why does she not simply tell Livia that she is betrothed or otherwise unavailable? It may be that Viola is more of a schemer than productions generally give her credit for. After all, she now has the opportunity to humiliate Olivia. Never forget that Viola and Olivia are competitors in love, and while Olivia has a house, money, and servants, Viola is an orphan with nothing in the world. In other words, the stakes are very high, and Viola must play a careful game. She must eliminate Olivia as a rival while maintaining her own disguise. So let me hear you speak. I pity you. That's a degree to love. No, not a Greece, but is a vulgar proof that very oft we pity enemies. Why then, methinks, tis time to smile again. Oh, world, how apt the poor are to be proud. If one should be a prey, how much the better to fall before the lion than the wolf. The clock upbraids me with the waste of time. Be not afraid, good youth, I will not have you. And yet when wit and youth is come to harvest, your wife is like to reap a proper man. There lies your way. Due west. Then westward ho. Grace and good disposition attend your ladyship. You'll nothing, madam, to my lord by me. Stay. I prithee tell me what thou thinkst of me. That you do think you are not what you are. If I think so, I think the same of you. Then think you right. I am not what I am. Viola, though, never quite manages to play her game with any degree of skill. Caught in her trap of mistaken identity and false affections, she is unable to free herself on her own. She is saved only by the playwright, who brings Viola's brother back from the dead to liberate her. As charming as Viola is, she is never once mistress of her own fate. It takes a storm to bring her to Illyria, Orsino to send her to Olivia's court, and Sebastian to rescue her after she is ensnared in her farcical love triangle. Viola never really wants anything other than a husband and a brother to call her own. These aren't bad desires, but they are unremarkable ones. Now, much has been made of the fact that Viola falls silent towards the end of the play, and while Orsino proposes to her, Shakespeare doesn't even give Viola a response. But why should he? Since confessing her love for Orsino in Act 1, her answer to a marriage proposal has always been a fait accompli. 
Shakespeare took pains to show how Rosalind deliberates before finally accepting Orlando, but Viola has no interest in such considerations. She does not have Rosalind's caution or wisdom. Now, in many ways, Viola may be smarter than many of Shakespeare's other heroines, but she is every bit as naive when it comes to love. The other plotline in Twelfth Night is the one involving the efforts of Sir Toby Belch and his cohorts to humiliate Malvolio. His great crimes appear to be running an effective household and not wanting Toby Belch to drink so much. His hatred of revelry could not have endeared him to Shakespeare's audiences, but I hesitate to call Malvolio a villain if only because his desires aren't particularly villainous. He's a man doing his job, and as a reward, the others, provoked by wine and boredom, decide to ruin his life. They are entirely successful, and though even Olivia admits that he, quote, has been most notoriously abused, end quote, she doesn't seem too upset about it, and the play ends with Malvolio vowing a revenge he'll never have. The plotline involving Viola has a happy end, but Malvolio's storyline has a much more cynical touch. When we first meet Sir Toby and his comrade-in-arms, Andrew Agucic, they are united in revelry. Toby has brought Andrew to Illyria, ostensibly to woo Olivia, when in fact, he really just wants something else. That quaffing and drinking will undo you. I heard my lady talk of it yesterday, and of a foolish knight that you brought in one night here to be her wooer. Who, Sir Andrew Aguecheek? Aye, he. He's as tall a man as any's in Illyria. What's that to the purpose? Why, he has 3,000 ducats a year. Aye, but he'll have but a year in all these ducats. He's a very fool and a prodigal. Impairing the rascal Sir Toby with the dim-witted Sir Andrew, Shakespeare gives us a supreme comic duo that we rarely find elsewhere. The fact that both are peers of the realm and so of the upper class only heightens the satire. Here we have two members of the nobility who are anything but noble. In Twelfth Night, Shakespeare sends a great deal of time breaking down the wall between the classes. Viola, presumably of lower birth, ends up with a count, while her brother ends up married to a lady, and Sir Toby ends up running off with Mariah, the lowly maid. That this sort of thing happens often is remarked upon by Malvolio, who uses the fact as justification for why the love letter he receives is almost certainly real. It's good fortune. All is fortune. Mariah once told me she did affect me. And I have heard herself come thus near that should she fancy, it should be one of my complexion. <laughs> Besides, she uses me with a more exalted respect than anyone else that follows her. What should I think of? Yes, I know of a weaning role. Peace! Contemplation makes a rare turkey cock of him. How he jets under his advanced plumes. Why don't so beat the rogue? Peace, I say. To be... Count Malvolio. Oh, Rogue. Peace, peace. No, there is example for it. The lady of the Stretchy married the yeoman of the wardrobe. Violent Jessica. Oh, peace. Now he's deeply in. Look how imagination blows it. The lower classes, Viola, Sebastian, the Clown, Mariah, are all relatively normal when compared to the nobles, who race back and forth across Illyria like a parade of fools. None of them are interested in actually tending to the affairs of state. Olivia and Orsino can think of nothing but their own problems, while Sir Toby wants only to keep the party going for as long as he can. Just like Peter Pan, one almost expects to hear Sir Toby say, I just always want to be a little boy and have fun. But Peter Pan loses Wendy and the Lost Boys, and so too does Toby Belch start to lose his minions. His ability to keep Andrew in Illyria begins to weaken after Sir Andrew sees Olivia pursuing Cesario. Convincing Andrew to duel with Cesario, they all soon fall out of favor with Olivia and are later beaten by a vengeful Sebastian. How now, 
now, gentlemen, how is it with you? That's all one has hurt me and bears the end on sot. Did see Dick Surgeon sot? Oh, he's drunk, Sir Toby, an hour agone. His eyes were set at eight in the morning. Then he's a rogue and a passy measures pavern. <laughs> I hate a drunken rogue. Away with him. Who hath made this havoc with them? I'll help you, Sir Toby, because we'll be dressed together. Will you help an asshead and oh. a coxcomb oh. and a name, oh. a thin-faced knave, a gull? Get him to bed. After this, Sir Toby and his band exit, and there's every indication that they are leaving Neverland behind. Sir Andrew disappears, while Sir Toby quietly marries Mariah. Like Viola and Sebastian, Mariah is the member of the lower class who, through marriage, brings some member of the upper class back down to earth. This is where Shakespeare's satire is the strongest, and where he suggests, through the lens of comedy, that the lower classes might be useful for keeping the upper classes in order. This may be why Twelfth Night remains one of Shakespeare's most popular plays, at first glance, it seems like a frothy comedy, but there is in fact some bite lurking beneath all of that froth. Twelfth Night never quite manages to shed itself of its initial melancholy, giving an elegiac quality to what is the last of Shakespeare's light romances. After this, his plays take a decidedly darker turn. He will never write a pure comedy again, although The Two Noble Kinsmen comes close, and even there he needed John Fletcher to help him write the jokes. It may be that something happened in the life of our friend William around 1602 that made him turn away from writing plays like The Comedy of Errors and Twelfth Night, but he may also have simply tired of the genre. The exhaustion is definitely palpable. Charming as it is, Twelfth Night runs out of steam as the play goes on, and its alternate title, What You Will, has a casual, insouciant air, as if Shakespeare was saying, What's this play? Eh, it's whatever you want it to be. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. Twelfth Night is another one of those plays which has often been filmed, and while there are plenty to choose from, your best bet is Trevor Nunn's cinematic adaptation from 1996. She's playing a he. What kind of man is he? Not yet old enough for a man, nor young enough for a boy. Come here, the boy. Who's loved by her. She loves me. Who's adored by him. Then unfold the passion of my love. Who's the object of her affections. <clears throat> As I've remarked elsewhere, the 90s were a bit of a heyday for Shakespeare films, thanks largely to the success of Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. At the time of its release, Trevor Nunn's film couldn't help but be compared to Branagh's, given that they were both adaptations of beloved comedies. Now that years have passed, Twelfth Night can be judged on its own merits. The British cast contains plenty of talented names, like Helen and Bonham Carter as Olivia and Imogen Stubbs as Viola. Nunn opens the film with an amusing prologue, in which Viola and Sebastian are amusing the people on their ship, performing an act that plays on their likeness. This is a smart way to set up what will be the primary joke of the film, and it's a great example of an interpolation that actually helps the story along. Nunn doesn't exactly highlight the play's darker themes, but they manage to come out anyway thanks largely to a cast that mines the text for all it's worth. Richard E. Grant, a talent at playing the fop, adds a great deal of fun to Sir Andrew Akuchik, while Ben Kingsley gives Feste the Clown a grave countenance that isn't usually seen. He's at once both inside the narrative and out of it, the fool who at once mocks the lovers and envies them. As always, I'll leave links to this and other versions you can watch on the show page. That's it for Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, one of Shakespeare's least popular plays, It's Troilus and Cressida. 
Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. For more information, you can visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare and Bard. And you know what? While you're there, why not take a look around to see what else I do with my time? You can find information about how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. Available from St. Martin's Press, it's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggled to survive in a world too small to contain them. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 23 plays down, 15 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.